0: Turned Up Dead is a true crime podcast. The cases we cover include details of violence, sexual assault, suicide, and homicide. It is not suitable for children, and listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed in this show are those of individuals and not turned up dead. On the cool and cloudy morning of Saturday, 20th of September, 2014, Barbara Denham was taking her Border Collie Max on his daily walk in Barking, East London. They walked through a gate and into the grounds of St Margaret's Church, as they would usually do, but it was then that Barbara noticed a slim young man sitting, sort of propped up, against the churchyard wall. As she got closer, she could barely believe it. The young man was dead. Now this would be shocking enough for anyone to stumble across, but just 23 days earlier, Barbara, whilst walking her dog Max, in the same churchyard had discovered another body of another slim young man, leaning against the same part of the wall, in almost the exact same position. To Barbara, finding these bodies in almost the exact same location and position, just weeks apart, was very suspicious. But it wasn't at all suspicious to the police. Both deaths had been neatly explained in a note that they had found in a plastic wallet that was in the second dead man's hand. The note said that he, the second man, had intentionally overdosed because he couldn't continue living with the guilt of having killed the first young man, who Barbara had discovered dead in the churchyard. When the discovery of the second body was reported in the news, a very worried, alive man called police and asked if the three men found dead in Barking had been murdered. Police assured him that they hadn't. The man on the phone hadn't made a mistake, Barbara hadn't found the first and second dead young men embarking. She had found the second and third. The police had made a number of mistakes. All three men had been murdered, by the same man. The first dead young man had been found a five-minute walk away from St Margaret's Church, just three months earlier. He was found right in front of the apartment of the man who had killed him, and this man had even been charged with perverting the course of justice in connection with the death, but police wouldn't even start to investigate any of the first three men's deaths as suspicious, until the body of a fourth young man was found in Barking, right next to St Margaret's Church. Welcome to Turned Up Dead. I'm Fiona. The true crime story I'm going to tell you today is of the deaths of Anthony Walgate, Gabriel Covari, Daniel Whitworth and Jack Taylor. Although there are no details and there's nothing graphic, this episode does mention rape and suicide. I started in the middle, so let's go back to the early hours of Thursday, June 19th, 2014. At 4.18am, a man who doesn't identify himself calls emergency services and informs them of a man collapsed on the ground in front of some flats in Cook Street, barking. Paramedics are the first to arrive at the scene. And there they find a young man slumped against the wall in the communal entrance of flat numbers 59 to 70. It was clear they were too late. A paramedic later reported that the man's body had felt, quote, "...extremely cold to the touch." End quote. He laid a blanket over the man's body and reported the death to police as suspicious. Police at the scene, looking to speak with a man who had dialed 999, first find and speak with his housemate, who was standing outside. Police then enter flat number 62 to find the caller, 41-year-old Stephen Port, asleep in bed. The deceased man outside his flat was Anthony Walgate, a 23-year-old student who lived in northwest London. Anthony was found with the zip of his jeans undone and his underwear inside out and back to front. He was wearing a t-shirt that was far too big for him and his clothing was pushed up, exposing his midriff. Anthony's phone was missing, but there was a black hold all beside him and in that police found a small brown bottle containing a small amount of liquid. This was later tested to be GHB. GHB is used legally to treat narcolepsy, the chronic sleep disorder that causes extreme tiredness and makes sufferers suddenly fall asleep. However, because of its ability to make users feel euphoric and reduce people's inhibitions, it's often used illegally as a club drug and during sex. But it's very easy to overdose on GHB, which can lead to unconsciousness, hence its darker known use as a date rape drug. Overdosing on GHB can also cause coma and death. In the UK, illegal drugs are categorised into three classes. Apparently, this is according to how dangerous a drug is to the user, and the impact it can have on society. Class A drugs are supposedly the most dangerous and most harmful drugs. Class B drugs are in the middle. And Class C drugs are supposedly the least dangerous and least harmful illegal drugs to society in the UK. In the UK, GHB is currently classed as a Class C drug. This does mean it's illegal to possess or sell it, but it's on the lowest tier which may well cause people to believe that it's safer than it really is. I mean, it can kill you. That's pretty dangerous. Personal possession of GHB could get you up to two years in prison, or an unlimited fine, or both. Dealing GHB can get you up to 14 years in prison, or an unlimited fine, or both. Marijuana, however, is classified a Class B drug, which makes no sense to me. Too much weed alone isn't going to put you in a coma, or kill you and I've never heard of it being used to sexually assault people on a regular basis. If, like me, you think these UK drug classes make no sense, and you've not heard of a man named Professor David Nutt, please look him and his research up. Back to the story. Stephen Port was interviewed that day, but only as a significant witness. In his witness statement, Port explained how he had got home from his night shift around 4am and found the man collapsed on the floor blocking his way into his flat. He said that he had slapped the man's face and the man had, quote, made a gurgling noise, end quote, but he didn't wake up. So Port said he sat the man up and moved him out of the way into the position in which he was found, dialed 999, and then went inside to bed. By midday, the leading investigator on the case, Superintendent Mike Hamer of Barking and Dagenham Police, had made a public statement, he said quote, At this early stage we are keeping an open mind with regards to this death that is being treated as unexplained, and any information the public can provide will assist us. End quote. At this stage, police believed they knew Anthony's identity, but they hadn't yet been able to contact his family. A postmortem was performed on june twentieth, which concluded the death as inconclusive, and wasn't able to give an exact time of death. The toxicology results weren't yet available at 8:30 on that same evening, Stephen Port appeared on UK Celebrity Masterchef alongside a TV soap actress and a member of an R&B group. The popular TV show involved a challenge during which the celebrity contestants helped prepare and serve meals to bus drivers at a bus garage in East London. This was where Port worked as a chef Anthony Walgate's mother, Sarah, was on holiday in Turkey at the time of his death, and so it wasn't until the evening of Sunday June 22nd that she was informed of her son's death. She flew back to the UK immediately. In a BBC documentary about the killings, she described the flight as a blur. Once back in the UK, Sarah told Barking and Dagenham police that her son's death was suspicious. She told her local newspaper... Quote, "Straight away I told police that I was 150% sure it would not have been drink or drugs he wouldn't touch beer he would drink cocktails or wine that was his thing" End quote. She asked the police to track Anthony's phone which Sarah said they didn't do because it was too expensive When Anthony's toxicology results came in they identified the cause of his death to be GHB intoxication a week after Anthony Walgate's body was found, a close friend of his called police. He told them that Anthony occasionally worked as an escort. London is an expensive place to be a student, and like many young people, Anthony wasn't great at managing his money, which may have been why he had started escorting while studying in London. His friend said Anthony had arranged to meet a man named Joe Dean in Barking before his death. Joe Dean was really Stephen Port. Police arrested Port that day and took his DNA. They also took his computer. During his police interview, Port first tried to make out that he knew Anne Anthony, but not Anthony Walgate. Faced with evidence of him being in contact with Anthony, Port eventually told police that he had met him on a male escort website named sleepyboy.com, and he had agreed to pay him £800, pounds, about thousand U.S. dollars for an overnight on June 17th. Port claimed that once at his flat, Anthony had taken his own drugs. He said that Anthony had felt sleepy, so he allowed him to stay in his bed while he went to work. This would have been to his night shift on June 18th. Port claimed that when he returned home from work, Anthony was dead. Rather than call police, Port said he had panicked and moved his body outside. Barking and Dagenham police accept this story, and charged Stephen Port with perverting the course of justice. Really just a fancy way of saying lying to the police. Despite requests from Anthony's university friends to look at his computer, neither Anthony's nor Port's computers were looked at during the investigation, despite them being in police possession. By June 30th, Port had been released on bail. When Anthony Walgate's body was found in June, police spoke with Stephen Port's flatmate. Less than two months later, in August, Port sent his neighbour and then friend Ryan a message saying, quote, Come meet my new Slovakian twink flatmate. End quote. Twink is a word that's used by some gay men to describe a young gay man with a slim build. The following day, Ryan took up Port's invitation and went to meet his new housemate. He didn't have far to walk. Ryan could see Port's flat from his own, they lived that close. Port wasn't home, but Ryan did get to meet his new housemate, Gabriel, who Ryan described to the BBC as quote, a really nice articulate chap. Twenty two year old Gabriel Cavari had moved to the UK in June in search of a better and freer life. He had stayed with a man named John Pape for six weeks and then moved to Cook Street to stay with Stephen Port. According to Gabriel's friends, Port had let him stay for free because he had just wanted to quote, fill the place. End quote. This was august twenty third. On august twenty fourth, Ryan received a message from Gabriel which said quote, Stephen is not a nice person, end quote. On August 25th, Ryan noticed that he hadn't seen Gabriel in or around the flat. He had only seen Stephen Port. So he asked Port about Gabriel. Port said that he had, quote, gone to stay with another local guy, some soldier guy he had been chatting to online, end quote. At some point that day, Stephen Port changed his phone number. Ryan didn't see Gabriel on August 26th and no one had heard from him. The last his friends had heard from him was a message on the 25th, which just said, I'm fine, followed by a smiley face. The next day, August 27th, Port's sister, Sharon, called to find her brother in a very stressed state. When she asked why he was stressed, he told her that there was a body in his flat, and that it had been there for a day and a night. Port had gone to work as usual, whilst the body had been in his flat. During Stephen Port's trial, his sister told the court that Port had told her that a man had stayed the night with him, and when he Port had woken up, the man wasn't breathing. She said they had taken drugs, but I don't know what. During this call, she did tell him to go to the police, but she didn't contact them herself later tried to explain away this call to his sister by claiming that he was referring to finding Anthony Walgate dead back in June. The day after this call, August 28th, Barbara Denham, whilst walking her dog, found Gabriel's body in St Margaret's Church. At first she thought he was sleeping, but as she got closer she noticed that his sunglasses weren't sitting on his face properly, and his clothes were pushed up on his chest, Barbara was brave enough to touch a bare bit of skin, which felt cold. In the BBC documentary, she explains how she thought that, looking at his clothes, he couldn't have dressed himself that way, and he must have been placed there. She said, quote, it didn't look right, end quote. Yet police treat Gabriel's death as non-suspicious. Police visit John Pape who was the man Gabriel had stayed with prior to moving to Cook Street with Stephen Port. They inform him that Gabriel had been found dead in a cemetery in Barking. Unlike police, John Pape wanted to understand what had happened, so he typed, Unexplained deaths in Barking, into Google. The top search result, and still is at the time of recording, was a news article from the Barking and Dagenham Post, titled... Man Dies in Unexplained Circumstances in Barking. By this time, the article was a couple of months old, from June that year, and it was about Anthony Walgate, not John's friend Gabriel. John read the article, and then typed Cook Street Barking into Google Maps. Upon seeing Cook Street so close to where Gabriel had been found, just a five minute walk away, John thought the circumstances were far too similar. But despite investigating both deaths, Barking and Dagenham police don't see a connection. On September 10th, Gabriel's boyfriend, Thierry, noticed a man named John Luck had started to follow Gabriel on Facebook. Curious, he contacted John Luck and asked if he knew Gabriel. John Luck was really Stephen Port. Posing as John Luck and claiming to be a Californian ex-gay porn star, Stephen Port told Thierry that he had slept with Gabriel and that after spending two nights together at his place, an older Irish man named Tony had picked Gabriel up in a green Toyota. John Luck acted surprised to hear of Gabriel's death and asked, quote, Will police want to speak with me as my DNA would be on him? End quote. A few weeks later, in September 2014, Port using one of his many online profiles, met 21-year-old Daniel Whitworth on a website named FitLads. They arranged to meet on the 18th of September, and Stephen Port suggested they first go for a drink before heading back to his flat. In a message he sent to Daniel, Port said this was, quote, so you know I'm not some psycho, end quote. Daniel lived with his boyfriend, A man named Ricky, who he messaged on the afternoon of September 18th, saying he'd be home late due to work. However, Daniel left work early and headed to Barking to meet Stephen Port. Despite his recent suspicions that Daniel might have been meeting other men, Ricky was concerned when he didn't return home that night. When Daniel's boss told him the following morning that Daniel hadn't arrived at work, Ricky reported Daniel was missing to Kent's police. Meanwhile, Stephen Port deleted his Fitlads account. On September nineteenth, while posing as John Luck, Port mentioned a man named Dan to Thierry. He said that this Irish Tony had told him that Gabriel had attended a drug-fueled sex party with a man his age named Dan. According to John Luck, during these parties, older men quote, get young guys so high that they then just rape them. It's the day after this, Saturday, September 20th, 2014, at around 11.20am, that Barbara found Daniel Whitworth's body in the churchyard. Speaking to the BBC, she said, When I looked and saw another young boy sitting in exactly the same position, in exactly the same place, it was a bit like deja vu. I thought, I don't believe it. Daniel was found sitting on a blue sheet. A small bottle, the type that's often used to hold GHB, was found with him. His phone was missing, but clutched in his hand was an apparent suicide note. Daniel's family were informed of his death, and police told them that it looked like he had taken his own life by overdosing on drugs. His family are devastated and quite confused, His biological mother had taken her own life only a few months before Daniel's death. Daniel had come to believe suicide to be a selfish act. Because of this strong belief he had, his family found his apparent suicide very hard to accept. But the police had told them that there was a note, a handwritten note at that. Police did ask Daniel's family if they could identify the handwriting, but when his family looked at it, they weren't sure if it was his writing or not. This was 2014, most 21-year-olds weren't handwriting letters to their families, and so the only recent sample they could find of Daniel's handwriting to compare it to was in a birthday card he had sent, which didn't contain much writing. The police had also only shown Daniel's family the very end of the suicide note, so they only had two very small samples of handwriting to compare. Had police shown his family the whole letter, they might have raised concerns about it sounding nothing like their son, but police didn't show them the letter. During Daniel's autopsy, a pathologist noticed bruising under both arms that, quote, may have resulted from manual handling prior to death, end quote. But despite this, the police settled for the story given in the suicide note. The note said, quote, I'm sorry to everyone. Mainly my family, but I can't go on anymore. I took the life of my friend, Gabriel Klein. We was just having some fun at a mate's place, and I got carried away and gave him another shot of G. I didn't notice while we was having sex that he had stopped breathing. I tried everything to get him to breathe again, but it was too late. It was an accident, but I blame myself for what happened, and I didn't tell my family I went out. I know I would go to prison if I go to the police, and I can't do that to my family. And at least this way, I can at least be with Gabriel again. I hope he will forgive me. BTW, please do not blame the guy I was with last night. We only had sex, then I left. He knows nothing of what I have done. I have taken what G I have left, with sleeping pills. So if it does kill me, it's what I deserve. Feeling dizzy now, as took ten minutes ago so hoping you understand my writing. I dropped my phone on the way here, so it should be in the grass somewhere. Sorry to everyone. Love always, Daniel P.W. It was when he heard about Daniel Whitworth's death that John Pape called the police and asked them if the three men had been murdered. The police said that they hadn't. Because John Pape wasn't family or next of kin, The police weren't able to tell him much about Gabriel's death, so he had then contacted Thierry, Gabriel's Spanish partner. Thierry informed John Pape about his interactions with John Luck, which further raised John Pape's concerns. So he got back on the phone to Barking and Dagenham police to inform them of John Luck's story of sex parties. But there was no one there to speak with him at the time, and no one responded to the message that he left. John Pape didn't stop there. He contacted UK-based LGBT plus magazine Pink News and LGBT plus anti-violence charity Gallup. Both organisations then contacted the police, only for them to be told that Anthony's death wasn't linked to the others. So police had seemingly settled on believing the apparent confession suicide note, and weren't investigating any other possibilities as on September 23rd, the Barking and Dagenham Post reported, quote, police are investigating a possible link between two unexplained deaths at St Margaret's Churchyard, end quote. But it also said, quote, police are not currently looking for anyone else in connection with the deaths, end quote. On the same day this article was published, John Luck sent the following message to TRE, quote, Maybe Dan knew what happened to Gab and could not live with the guilt or something like that. End quote. The news that Daniel was found with a suicide note hadn't yet been made public. The next day, a detective responded to an email Thierry had sent that had contained a news article about Anthony Walgate's death. The detective said that it had nothing to do with Gabriel or Daniel's deaths. He then asked Thierry to get John Luck to contact him. Thierry had already given the detective information about John Luck and a link to his Facebook profile. Throughout these cases, the victim's families and friends seemed to be doing more police work than the police whose job it was. By September 29th, John Luck of course hadn't called the detective. At 6pm, the Barking and Dagenham Post published an article with some very interesting quotes from Detective Chief Inspector Tony Kirk the lead detective, on Gabriel and Daniel's cases. I don't know if this was the detective that Thierry had been in contact with, but it is a possibility. Detective Chief Inspector Tony Kirk said, quote, It is unusual and slightly confusing because they aren't local. If they were local, I could understand a bit more, so we need to see if there's a clear connection with the borough regarding the two of them, end quote. DCI Kirk again quote, If we were to take them on their own right, there would be nothing unusual. We do get sudden deaths on a very regular basis. The issue with this was that they weren't at an age where we would normally expect it. They also weren't in a location where we would normally expect it. End quote. But he then says, quote, But on the same note, there's nothing, at the moment, suspicious about any of them. End quote. No detective working on the case ever tried contacting John Luck themselves. Had they done so, they might have discovered who he really was, and prevented Stephen Port from getting away with murder yet again. In March 2015, Stephen Port pleaded guilty to perverting the course of justice regarding Anthony Walgate's death. For this offence, he was given eight months, but he served just four before being released with an electronic tag. In June 2015, an inquest was held into the deaths of Gabriel Cavari and Daniel Walgate. In the UK, a death inquest is held to investigate deaths that are unknown, violent, unnatural, or if a person died whilst in prison or police custody. During the inquest, Daniel Whitworth's family learned that no handwriting expert had been asked to examine the suicide note. Police said that they had had a look at it themselves. The family also learned that the police had said that they, Daniel's family, had identified the handwriting on the suicide note as being Daniel's. His family didn't say this. They said they couldn't be sure. To give police the benefit of the doubt, this could have been reported accidentally. Daniel's relatives also hear for the first time of the bruising on Daniel's body, and they learn that the blue sheet he had been found on hadn't been tested for DNA. The reason police gave for this was that they felt there was no need for DNA testing, as they considered there to be no other involvement in Daniel's death. The coroner ruled an open verdict. A third party couldn't be ruled out. Given that the police had barely investigated either death as suspicious. I would imagine that there wasn't enough evidence for her to have ruled that a third party had been involved. If more investigation had been done, perhaps the following events wouldn't have happened. On the night of Saturday, 12th of September, 25-year-old Jack Taylor was out with friends at the trades club in Dagenham. He had enjoyed a few drinks, but he wasn't drunk. Jack went home and opened Grinder Shortly before 2am, Stephen Port sent him a message. After chatting for a while, Jack decided to go and meet him. By this time, it was the early hours of Sunday morning. So although Jack lived with his family, they didn't notice that he had come home, let alone notice him go back out. Jack's friends and family weren't aware that he had been seeing men, and so it's unlikely that he would have told any of his friends that he was going to meet a man. At 3am, Jack is captured on CCTV walking from Barking Station with Port towards his flat. Just a few hours later, slightly before 7.30am, Port blocked Jack's account on Grindr. Port also messaged his flatmate and tried to prevent him from coming home, and then later deleted his own Grinder account. Jack's family aren't concerned when he doesn't return home on Sunday, because as far as they know, he had been out with his friends, and it wasn't unusual for him to stay at a friend's place after a night out. On Sunday night, Stephen Port moved Jack's body to St Margaret's churchyard. By Monday, September 14th, Jack's family were now feeling quite concerned, so they reported him missing. That same morning, Jack's body was discovered by an unnamed person. He was leaning against the same wall that Gabriel and Daniel had been left against, but on the other side just inside the grounds of the Old Abbey, rather than in the churchyard. His shirt was pushed up above his stomach. In one pocket, there was a small brown bottle, and in another, there was an unused syringe. His phone was missing. Whilst Jack's mother is talking on the phone to his sister, Donna, the police arrive at her house. They ask her if she's Jack's mother. When she says she is, they bluntly tell her, Your son's dead. When she heard her mother scream, Donna said she slid down the refrigerator onto the floor and sat there in tears. Jack had two younger sisters, Donna and Jenny. If it weren't for them, it's very likely that Stephen Port would have gotten away with not only Jack's, but Anthony's, Gabriel's and Daniel's murders, and he could easily have, and in my opinion would have, gone on to kill again and destroy even more lives. When toxicology results came back, they showed a mixed drug and alcohol overdose to be the cause of Jack's death. To police, this aligned with the drug paraphernalia found with Jack's body, and with no obvious marks or wounds to his body, police treated Jack's death as non-suspicious. Jack's sisters knew that there was more to their brother's death than a self-administered overdose. Their brother didn't use drugs. And it was extremely unlikely that he would ever use drugs, because he was very strongly anti-drugs, so they started investigating. And just like John Pape had done previously, Donna and Jenny come across news articles about the other young men who were found dead around St Margaret's churchyard, and notice the obvious similarities. So they call Barking and Dagenham police and raise their concerns. The police tell them that there's no connection between Jack's death and the deaths of the other men. Two weeks after Jack's body is found, around September 28th, Jack's family learned that police have CCTV footage of Jack, captured in the early hours of the morning of his death, which shows Jack walking with an unknown man around a barking station. When they asked police who the man was, the police told them that they didn't know. Police go on to explain that in some CCTV footage taken from later that morning, Jack is seen walking alone, so there was no need for them to identify the man. Donna and Jenny put pressure on police to release the footage so the men can be identified, but because police don't find Jack's death suspicious, they don't release the video. Less than a fortnight after this, the police realise that Jack wasn't ever seen alone on the cameras, the person seen walking alone had been somewhere else. Jack and the unknown man, who we know to be Stephen Port, had been together all along. On Tuesday thirteenth of October, the police finally release the CCTV footage and ask for the public's help in identifying the man. On the morning of Thursday fifteenth of October, Stephen Port is identified as being the man seen with Jack on CCTV. The person who identified him was actually a Barking and Dagenham police officer. By that afternoon, Port had finally been arrested on suspicion of causing the deaths of Anthony Wargate, Gabriel Cavari, Daniel Whitworth, and Jack Taylor. The case was then passed from the Barking and Dagenham police to London's main Metropolitan Police Homicide and Major Crime Command. That evening, Port begins four days of police interviews. In the first interview, he denies having any involvement in the death of Gabriel Cavari. When the interviewing officer asks were you involved in administering any drugs or poisons or noxious substances to him, Ports doesn't directly deny it, and instead replies quote, No, I don't administer drugs to anyone, end quote. And then, without further questioning, says that somebody else does that Daniel. Port then tries to make out that he's not sure if it's even the same Daniel, but he does say that the name Whitworth rang a bell. Some of these interviews are on YouTube, so you can see them for yourself. I found the video of what I'm going to tell you about quite disturbing. The interviewer shows Stephen Port a photograph of Jack Taylor and asks if he recognises him. Port slides the photograph closer to himself and looks at it closely for almost 20 seconds. Before finally answering, I don't recognise him. He briefly leans away before getting closer again. He then moves back and says, I don't pay full attention to guys' faces at parties. He then pushes the photo away a little, but pulls it back towards himself again and continues, But I don't recognise his face. He takes nearly a minute to say this, and the whole time Port is just staring at the photo. In his interview the following day, Port is shown a map which shows his flat, St Margaret's Church, and the abbey behind it. When asked if he had been in the grounds behind the church, where the old walls are, Port replied, Oh, no, no, looks, no, looks spooky, so I wouldn't go there. End quote The police officer replied quote, "You've never been there. In all the eight years you've lived across the road from there. Port not only denied ever being there, but he acted unaware of the bodies being found there. Port also went on to deny writing the suicide letter, despite the handwriting being very similar to his own. A handwriting expert later matched Port's writing to the suicide note. And the paper it was written on had come from his flat. In light of this evidence, Port changed this part of his story and claimed that Daniel had dictated it to him. Port denied any involvement in the deaths and insisted that he had told the truth. At some time in October, Barking and Dagenham Police refer themselves to the Independent Police Complaints Commission, the IPCC. The IPCC, was a public body established in 2004 to investigate any possible shortcomings made by police. The IPCC started an investigation into the actions of 17 mostly Barking and Dagenham police officers. 16 of these 17 officers answered no comment when they were questioned. Stephen Port's six-week trial was held at the Old Bailey in November 2016. During the trial, Port maintained his innocence and repeated the version of events he gave in his interview upon arrest for murder. He avoided looking at any of the victims' families throughout. On 23rd of November 2016, the jury returned a verdict of guilty to all four murders by a majority of eleven to one. On the twenty fifth of November, Stephen Port was sentenced to a whole life sentence for the murders of Anthony Walgate, Gabriel Klein, Daniel Whitworth, and Jack Taylor. In his sentence and remarks, Mr Justice Openshaw said, I have no doubt that the seriousness of the offending is so exceptionally high that the whole life order is justified. Indeed, it is required. The sentence, therefore, upon the counts of murder, is a sentence of life imprisonment, I decline to set a minimum term. The result is a whole life sentence and the defendant will die in prison. End quote. When news of Port's arrest became public, other men came forward and bravely told their stories of being drugged and raped by Port. So in addition to the murders, Port was also tried for attacks on eight other men. In the UK, the maximum sentence for rape is life imprisonment and this is what Port was handed. Mr. Justice Openshaw noted that life imprisonment, quote, is the only appropriate sentence to mark the gravity and depravity of these offences, end quote. The maximum sentence for administering a substance with intent is 10 years, and Port got that too. In total, Port was found guilty of 22 offences that included murder, rape, and administering a substance with intent he was acquitted of all charges regarding an additional man. Upon Port's murder convictions, the open verdict that had been given the previous year, after the inquest into Gabriel and Daniel's deaths, was quashed by the High Court, and a new inquest into all four deaths was ordered. Unlike the previous inquests, this inquest would have a jury who will be asked to consider if there were any police failings, and whether police prejudice, namely homophobia, played a part in Stephen Port not being stopped much sooner. In January 2018, the Independent Police Complaints Commission became the Independent Office for Police Conduct, the IOPC. The IOPC concluded the investigation into the 17 officers who worked the initial unexplained death cases. No police penalties were called for, and no police officers were disciplined. In a statement to the BBC, the IOPC said, quote, While we agree none of the officers involved in these investigations may have breached professional standards justifying disciplinary proceedings, we will be making a number of recommendations to the Metropolitan Police to address some of the systematic failings our investigation identified, end quote. The IOPC noted, quote, They will now be required to improve their performance, end quote. After Port's trial, Commander Stuart Cundy, from the Homicide and Major Crime Command, told reporters quote, The evidence we have heard at the trial of Stephen Port does identify that there were potentially missed opportunities. End quote. On her experiences with Barking and Dagenham Police, Anthony Wargate's mother, Sarah, said quote, It was so hard to get any information, and they just refused to investigate it. They were appalling end quote. She also said, quote, we were told time and time again nothing to investigate, end quote. Sarah's son, Anthony, was 23 years old when he was killed. He was from Hull, but he was living in London while he studied fashion at the University of Middlesex. He loved to make people laugh. A friend described him as a friend like no other. His mum said he had a zest for life, and she has no doubts that he would have succeeded as a designer. John Pape believes that police prejudice did play a part in the deaths not being fully investigated. He told the BBC, quote, If they had questioned as a detective should do, if they'd emphasised with the victims, then they would have connected them, and Stephen Port would not have been allowed to kill Jack Taylor. End quote. Gabriel Kavari was 22 years old when he was killed. Not so much is known about him as he had only been living in the UK for just a few months. But by 22, he had already graduated university and left his home country, Slovakia, in hope of a better future. So it seems to me that he was following his dreams and would have gone on to be successful in life. In her victim impact statement, Amanda Pearson, Daniel Whitworth's stepmother, said, quote, we had a rich and fulfilling life ahead of us with Daniel, of that much I'm sure, and it has been stolen from us. I cannot possibly describe the whole this has left us. End quote. Daniel Whitworth was just 21 years old when his life was taken. His father, who raised him alone, was left childless, and his grandmother, who he was so close to, lost her only grandchild. Daniel loved his job as a chef in Canary Wharf, And looking at photos and comments from those close to his, I think it's clear that Daniel would have gone far in life. Daniel was a great friend and he was very much loved by his family. Jack's sisters believed the deaths would have been taken more seriously if they had been young women, not men. They said, We felt from the beginning it was just another one and nothing was taken seriously. Donna told the BBC, it's awful, because if they had done what they were supposed to do and looked into things slightly different before, then Jack would still be here, and maybe even possibly some of the other boys. Quote. Jack Taylor was 25 years old when he was killed. He loved his job as a forklift truck driver, and he lived in Dagenham with his parents and older sisters. More than 300 people attended Jack's funeral, and it's clear from the footage of his family that they're incredibly close. The inquest with the jury was due to start in January 2021, but was delayed due to the pandemic. As of the time of recording, in June 2021, a new date for it to start has not yet been arranged. I'm going to share a few thoughts about the case. I have no background in law or law enforcement. These are just my own personal opinions based on what I've read. I personally believe that the police did fail these four men. And at the very least, are guilty of making a succession of errors. I want to share some thoughts I had about the nine 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 emergency call that Stephen Port made to report Anthony's death. If you want to hear the full call, I've included a link in the sources, which you can find at turnedupdead.com. The call starts with the operator saying, "Emergency ambulance, what's the address of the emergency?" Stephen Port answers. ''Cook Street. There's a young boy. Looks like he's collapsed outside. I don't know.'' Port gives the street name freely enough. However, he later gives the wrong flat numbers, which if I were a police officer, I would find suspicious once I know that it was actually outside of his own flat. If he had nothing to hide, why give the wrong address? He kind of contradicts himself in the call as well. He first says it, quote, looks like he's collapsed, end quote, and then follows it with, I don't know. But then moments later, he says, quote, looks like he's collapsed or had a seizure or something, or he's just drunk, end quote. That's a lot of ideas for someone who doesn't know. I also find it interesting that he didn't offer drug use as a potential cause. I think I would have thought of that way before thinking that a seizure might be the reason for a 23-year-old to have collapsed. When asked to give the phone number he was calling from, Port replied, I'm just going to get in my car. I've got to get to my car, the parking. This is very uncooperative. I can't think of too many reasons an innocent person wouldn't give their number. Maybe if they were in the country illegally, or perhaps worried about another crime. When asked again what number he was calling from, Port hung up, which was extremely uncooperative. So of course they called back. When asked to confirm the location, Port replied that he had driven away. The emergency call operator continued to ask about the location and specifically what door number. Port said he didn't know the door number, to which the operator responded, you said 47 before. Port agrees with this. To me, Port seems really evasive in this call. It's like he was ready to give his story Someone's collapsed, maybe from a seizure or from drinking, but he doesn't know any more than that, and he doesn't seem prepared when he's questioned further. The end of the phone call goes as follows. The operator is first. How old did he look, roughly, sir? 20. Do you know if he was awake? No. Do you know if he was breathing? No, I don't know. Did you see anything happen at all? No. You just think he's possibly had a seizure. He was lying there on the floor. Yes. Some of the things I mentioned could be explained by the first story Stephen Port gave of finding Anthony collapsed outside his doorway. The fact that he moved him outside wouldn't make me very suspicious as such. It shows that Port is a horrific person. But this is London. So I find moving a collapsed person from your doorway and then going inside to bed a realistic enough sounding story. I think there was something else that the police missed here as well. Port claimed that the man had made a gurgling noise. But do you remember what the paramedic said? He said Anthony's body was extremely cold to the touch. I don't know what time the paramedics arrived, but I find it hard to believe that it would have been long enough for a person to go from being alive, making gurgling noises, to being dead and extremely cold to the touch. I believe the police were more ready to accept the story that Port gave them once they knew Anthony was working as an escort. I personally think that sex work should be legalised in the UK and I think it's pretty ridiculous to try to control who grown adults choose to have sex with and for what reason. It's like they're saying you can have sex for love, or lust, or to get your partner to wash the dishes, but not for money. As we all know, sex workers are often treated as lesser by police not only in the UK, but around the world. And if he happened to be a gay, transgender or ethnic minority sex worker, you're sadly often seen as even less important. In the BBC documentary, Barbara Denham explained how she thought that looking at Gabriel's clothes when she found him, that he couldn't have dressed himself that way, and that he must have been placed there. She said it didn't look right. If she could see that, why didn't train police think the same? I find it absolutely astonishing that the police accepted the apparent suicide note found in Daniel's hand at face value. The letter starts by apologising to his family and saying I can't go on anymore. That seems to show suicidal intention, and making apologies is something I would expect to see in a lot of genuine suicide letters. However, no family members are named, or even the words mum, dad or grandma. Daniel was apparently very close with his grandmother, so it might have seemed odd for her not to have been mentioned if his family had been shown the full note. When they were eventually shown the full letter, they did comment that it sounded cold. A big part of the note was an explanation of Gabriel's death. I don't think this is too strange in itself, guilty people do make deathbed confessions. Though I do think that when compared to such little said to his own family, it is a bit strange. During the confession, the note again mentions his family. It says, quote, I didn't tell my family I went out, End quote. Isn't he writing to his family? Why doesn't it say, I didn't tell you I went out? If the family had been shown the letter in full, they might have noticed this as suspicious. Daniel didn't live with his family. He had left his family home years before and was living with his boyfriend at the time of his death. So if Daniel had written this, wouldn't it have been more likely to say, I didn't tell my boyfriend I went out? But that would still be incorrect, because he sent his boyfriend a message saying that he'd be back late. The line, I can at least be with Gabriel again, would make you think that him and Gabriel were close. And I imagine this is what the police thought too. But the police were unable to find any connection between Daniel and Gabriel. They weren't friends on social media and neither Daniel nor Gabriel's other friends had heard of the other man. One line that really stood out was when he asked not to blame the man he was with last night, that being Stephen Port. In British English, the word dodgy is used to describe something that can't be trusted or might be dangerous. I would describe the following sentence as dodgy. Quote, BTW, please don't blame the guy I was with last night. We only had sex, then I left. He knows nothing of what I have done. I mean, it sounds like something from a really bad movie or play that was included to point towards the real killer in a really obvious way. But I guess Barking and Dagenham Police weren't watching enough bad movies or plays because this doesn't seem to set off any alarm bells for them. When Daniel's family eventually saw the full letter and read that Daniel was with a guy the night before his death, they asked the police who this guy was. Barking and Dagenham police told them that they didn't know. This is really frustrating because they could have found out. The blue sheet Daniel was found sitting on, and the plastic wallet the note was in, both contained Stephen Port's DNA. And if you remember, Port's DNA was taken after Anthony Walgate's death, so it was on file. But the police didn't test the blue sheet, or the plastic wallet, for DNA. The police said that they had felt no need to run DNA tests on the blue sheet, as they considered there to be no other involvement in Daniel's death. But isn't that the definition of having blinkers on? And I don't know, I'm not a cop, but wouldn't testing, even if to rule out other possibilities, been a good thing to do? The line about dropping the phone sounds odd to me too. If he had said that he had lost his phone, I'd buy that. But it says dropped, not lost so why wouldn't they have just picked it up when it was dropped? It seems odd to me to include an explanation of dropping the phone and then an idea of whereabouts it should be. To me, this sounds like maybe they want the phone to be found. I couldn't believe it when I read that a police detective had asked Thierry to get John Luck to contact him. I mean, that's just lazy. After Port's trial, Commander Stuart Cundy from the Homicide and Major Crime Command commented that, quote, there were potentially missed opportunities, quote. If you ask me, that's one hell of an understatement. What struck me when I first saw the photographs of Anthony, Gabriel, Daniel and Jack was how young they all look. I don't know how you can look at these young men. Listen to what their friends and family are telling you. Ignore evidence that was not only right in front of you, but given to you by the victim's friends and families and then pretty much turn around and say, nothing to investigate, job done. The outcome of the 2018 investigation into the officers on the original case, to me, sounded like, yeah, there were failings, but nothing bad enough for any repercussions. We'll tell them to do better next time. How badly would these police have to have done their jobs to warrant disciplinary proceedings, according to the IOPC? As I said before, there is another inquest that was due to start and this one will have a jewellery, so I hope that there's a better outcome for all of the victim's families. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turned Up Dead. All sources for this episode can be found at turnedupdead.com. Remember, if you listen carefully, even the words of liars will tell you the truth. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review, and if you really enjoyed the show, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash turned up dead.